Welcome to the Pocket Link Podcast. I'm Rick Henderson and I'll be your host this week as we look at the latest tech news, review a hot new product and chat to a top tech industry luminary. I'll be joined by our contributing editor Cam Bunton, who will guide us through OnePlus Nord, the company's forthcoming phone and prospective range that hopes to shake up the mid-range mobile market. Our resident PC gaming expert Adrian Willens will also give us the lowdown on the Acer Nitro 5, a games laptop that features very decent spec for under a grand, plus looks at gaming notebooks in general. And Stuart Miles will be talking to the UK boss of Bolt, Samuel Rossiti, in a very timely interview as the UK enters the trial phase of e-scooters hitting London streets. But first, back to Cam to give us a perspective on OnePlus's imminent plans to take over the mid-range. So Cam, tell me more about the OnePlus Nord and what the whole concept is. So the OnePlus Nord, by the sounds of it, it's sort of um, OnePlus's new mid-range device. So for the past few years, they've been making purely flagship phones because they've been all about giving you the best speed and the best performance possible in their phones. Um, But what that's meant over the last couple of years is that prices have increased significantly. So where OnePlus phones used to be known for being really affordable flagship powered phones. They've now gone up to prices over five, six, seven hundred pounds, even up to almost nine hundred pounds if you get the top spec one. So the OnePlus Nord is about essentially bringing those prices back down again to below five hundred US dollars, which equates to about four hundred pounds in the UK. Um, so that means slightly less powerful, and presumably it's going to be. Um, less premium as well but we're not sure because they haven't actually announced all the details yet um so is it a device or a, a range of devices um both from the by the sounds of it they've been referring to this um, nord uh, product line as a product line but at the same time calling the phone the oneplus nord so it seems like um it's going to be a new family of devices but again without them saying exactly what it means we don't know um, but they have done interviews in the past, over the past few weeks, where they've talked about um, making more affordable devices again, um, as well as bringing other categories of devices uh, into the market, be it smart homes or smart TVs, which actually they've already started doing in other regions. Um, is this OnePlus essentially hitting the reset button, or is it an extended line, like an extra line, and they'll still be doing like the OnePlus 8 and the OnePlus 8T? Yeah, it's it seems like it's an extended line. It's like it's it's sort of their new line within their within their brand of more affordable devices for people who maybe haven't been able to afford the phones that they've been releasing over the past couple of years. Like some of their early fans who really like OnePlus and are really involved, um, love the brand, love what it stands for, but haven't been able to buy the phones because they're just too expensive now. Um, so OnePlus Nord seems to be about. Uh, making something a bit more accessible for them without losing too much in terms of power and speed uh, and camera. That's another thing they've actually spoken about recently. Do you think actually that the mid-range is going to become a bigger market now? Um, we've, we've got an awful lot of flagships on the market. We've got a lot of phones that people can't really afford very easily, um, even on quite extortionate contracts. Um so do you think the mid-range is an area where not just OnePlus, but other companies are going to look to exploit even more so in the coming year? 
Yeah, I think so. It's a funny one because when we were all watching like the iPhone pushing prices up past the thousand pound mark and then soon after that Samsung and other companies started doing it, it, it soon became clear that they were sort of pushing the the top tier or the top prices way up, which means now suddenly there's there's a bit more space in between the two hundred pound phones and the one thousand pound phones. So then they can fill that space. Um, with the sort of higher performance mid-range devices. And we've seen it from uh, LG. The LG Velvet uh, uses the same processing power that the OnePlus Nord is going to use. Now, there's actually a phone by a company called Realme, which is sort of a sub-brand or offshoot of Oppo, which is in the same family of brands as OnePlus. Uh, the Realme X50, that uses that same processor. So it seems like there's a new wave of those phones coming in with that processor and with price points under £600. I mean, OnePlus originally made its name for, for as we, we've already mentioned, uh, for coming into a market with high spec but low prices. Yeah. Um, but that and that market now is being uh, sort of like adopted by a lot of Chinese manufacturers, other Chinese manufacturers. Yeah. Um, some of which people wouldn't have heard of before. Um, do you think that we're getting to a point where brand loyalty is becoming less important because uh, and quality of device is becoming more important? Um, I mean, in some ways, yes. But I think one of the things that's interesting about OnePlus is they, they often will talk about their community and do things for their community because they want them to feel like they're in this uh, special club. So they've been there since the beginning where, where they did this sort of excitement and hype around a ticket-based pre-ordering system. And they've done the same again uh, with the OnePlus Nord where there's like a limited run, almost like a, a limited pair of sneaker drop. You know how you have to... Um, getting on those raffles for some really high class limited edition uh, trainers from Nike or, or whatever. Now the OnePlus Nord has launch has got that sort of feel to it. So it feels like um, they, they pay a lot of attention to their community to the point where when they request new things in the software or request things to be added to the hardware, um, they actually take that on board and add it to their phone. So then the community feels like they've been listening to, uh, listened to, and they feel valued, and so they're more likely to stick with OnePlus because they feel like they're part of that club. Um, so I think a lot of those those fans who love OnePlus uh, would be reticent to join any other brand because then they would lose that sense of community and belonging that OnePlus seems to to foster with its fans. So is this an, a welcome return from OnePlus or by OnePlus to its uh, its older marketing strategy or its older sort of almost um, the, uh, the the punk strategy of the smartphone business? Because I remember it came along when it, the business was entirely dominated by both Samsung and Apple. Yeah. Um, and and presented an almost um, indie alternative. Uh, do you think that this is this marks a return to that OnePlus that we kind of lost in recent times? Yeah, it feels like it. You know, when you're watching some of their um, the strategy that they're using on social media with their new OnePlus Nord Instagram handle, it's a lot less big name corporate manufacturer and a lot more like, hey, we're we're indie, we're cool, we're rough. Look, we're swearing in our in our videos. Um, that kind of approach to it to make them feel a bit more edgy. Um, so they're, they're definitely returning to that sort of strategy. Um, but the thing that gets to me is that obviously now OnePlus isn't that company that 
that needs to do that anymore. They are one of the big uh, flagship smartphone makers now. Uh, and so they're, they're taking this approach, hoping that people don't notice that they're all, they're, they're a company that's capable of shipping out millions of phones at a time, um, but limiting the, the pre-sale run to like 100 units just to build hype and excitement. So there is that side of it. And I guess some people might enjoy it. But at the same time, this is a big company now. They They don't necessarily need to do that. I think my final question is why Nord? What does Nord mean? Oh, so I was, um, it's hard to be positive and not cynical about this, but um, OnePlus Nord, they said, uh, Carl Pei tweeted, Carl Pei is one of the original co-founders of OnePlus, um, and he tweeted something about it representing the the true north direction for the company. They've got this focus and they're going to stick to it. It's their value system. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think it means too much, to be honest to me, but I, that's what they've said. Excellent. Thank you, Cam. Thanks for that insight. No worries. Still to come, Adrian will be with me to review the Acer Nitro 5, a budget gaming laptop that doesn't shirk when it comes to spec. When you talk about budget laptops, especially when it's cramming in things like um, NVIDIA's RTX graphics cards and Intel's latest CPUs in there, you expect it's going to end up being... It's going to compromise in some areas. Now though, did you know that until very recently it was illegal to ride e-scooters on the pavements or indeed the roads of the UK? Only small zones such as the Olympic Park in East London had legalised use of rental scooters. But this week the UK entered its first major trial phase of the legalisation of electric powered scooters, with rental firms now allowed to offer them as a transport option. In a timely interview, Stuart talked to one of the industry's big hitters, Samuel Rossiti, the Managing Director of Bolt UK, about the government's scheme and much more. Enjoy. Brilliant. Okay, so let's, um, let's probably start this off nice and easy in just kind of giving us a positive history of, of Bolt in where, that, where you've come in and where you kind of feel you sit within the e-scooter rental business or beyond. Yeah, so I mean, Bolt as a global platform, uh, mobility platform, launched circa sort of six years ago and was originally built as a, a sort of a taxi uh, operator app to assist with people digitally ordering taxis. And as the PHV sort of market shifted globally and people started looking at private hire vehicles as, as more of a cost efficient um, alternative to taxis, then we shifted towards PHV a few years later. Um, I, I think, from memory, and I should, I, sh- I would, th- I would hope that my memory serves. Uh, 2017, 2018 was when you know micro mobility first started to really hit the scene with a few of the global, a uh, few of the US um, guys starting to put scooters on the streets. And into 2018, we saw. Uh, this positive trend in uptake of micromobility services in some cities around the world. So we we had our first play in 2018 um, when we launched Paris, and I was lucky enough to actually have not been a part of the uh, the launch week, but I was over in Paris for the month afterwards, helping uh, with some operations there, and was able to see uh, yeah the uptake, and it was it was incredible how quickly uh, people uh, adopted or were at least willing to try this new form um, of transport, which was just so different to what had been there before. 
Now, if anybody's been traveling over the last couple of years, you know, two years ago, if you were traveling to the States, certainly on the West Coast, you would have seen scooters, electric scooters around all over the place in San Francisco and sort of in that whole sort of Silicon Valley area and, and other cities across America. Then it felt that last year in the summer, uh, you know, whatever European city you went to, uh, you know, whether it was Lisbon or Paris or, or what have you, there were there were e-scooters around there. We haven't seen them in the UK, and that's because of the laws are very different here in the fact that they're you're, it's illegal currently to to ride an e-scooter on the streets yep. of, of of anywhere. Why do you think the law should change? Well, I, I think that the the shift towards micro mobility helps. You know, in particular, like when we're talking about London, uh, which is where our current operations sit with our private hire vehicle. Um, operating in, in London, you know, there's a real push towards uh, sustainability and, and uh, environmental impact. Um, and when you look at micromobility and what that can bring to the table in terms of low emissions, um, especially in a city, like I said, like London, which is just so congested um, and so urbanly dense, uh, it, it's got nothing but great benefits in um, for, the, for the environment. Um, and given the current circumstance we find in uh, ourselves in with the pandemic, it also allows people to travel without putting themselves at um, arm's length of, of other people. So it allows for that socially distant piece um, to continue from now until uh, the future, until we see uh, other rules around relaxing um, some of these uh, standards coming into effect now the uk government department of transport has, has talked about doing trials what are you hoping you know what sort of framework are you hoping the trials will include to make these things safe and usable and and you know for both you and for for the for the riders well we're we're involved in pretty much conversations up and down the uk at the moment so most uh most of the local boroughs have put their hand up and said we are interested um, after DFT made their announcement that they're uh, they're looking heavily at this uh, a month or so ago so you know the the conversation piece that we've been involved in has been around things like data sharing you know where I think we're one of the few operators that's quite keen um, for the data sharing piece not least okay. because we are a multimodal app you know you can rent scooters or take one of our private hire cars um, from the same app and that gives us obviously a significant uh, advantage in terms of the data that we collect because we know what short trips are taking place um, on our PHV uh, part of our operations and, and where uh, micromobility can step up and, and help um, to take um, some of the load off that part of the operations. In some of our other global markets, we've seen sort of up towards 9-10% um, of users that have started using scooters move away from short sort of three-mile journeys, which is, you know, a positive trend. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also looking at things, you know, around the requirements uh, of the scooters. We, we've custom built uh, an in-house model, which again, a little bit different to how some of our uh, our competitors have um, launched. We've we've gone with an in-house model that is completely modular, which allows us, you know, a much longer lifespan for that scooter. Uh, in the early days, when when scooter frenzy hit us, uh, the big concern was around, you know, how long will a what was a retail scooter survive on streets and in particular like paris like you said um or in portugal or in spain where you know these are cobblestone streets and some of the capital cities rome being another example 
Um, and, you know, so building this scooter in-house has, has allowed us to take all of those factors and take the lifespan of a, of a scooter from weeks, if not, you know, one or two months to 36 months with the current model that, that we're looking to roll out. And, you know, that scooter has been sent to um, one of the local testing houses in in the UK um, to make sure that it is considered sort of fit and proper for purpose and pass the standards that were mm. put put down by that uh, centre. So, yeah, we're we're hoping um, that the conversations that we're having with boroughs and and these authorities is that we get um, pilots that allow operators to get fleets out there gauge uh you know how the public are using them support the public with transitioning to this mode um especially considering we have uh, additional safety features things like um beginner mode on on the scooters as well so that when when you get on a scooter for the first time you don't have the full scope and and um, breadth of of the power that the scooter is allowed to to run out under the the legislation we allow you to put it into beginner mode because from what we know from you know how accidents happen it's it's pretty much uh, consistent that the majority of, of incidents happen when people are still on their first trip they're getting used to a scooter so looking- and that's, i suppose that's one of the questions i have is a lot of yeah. people are worried about the safety of not only people on the pavements as these things whiz past but also of the riders themselves i've you know i've been a few times where i've been in san jose at conferences and stuff and seen people just get wiped out you know sort of heavy crashes of, of scooters because the, the cars haven't seen them and stuff. What do you yeah. think needs to be done within the trial period when whenever it does start to make sure that the, the use of scooters is safe for everybody? Well, I think it, it really is city specific when it comes to sort of these incidents. You, when you look at a, a city like London, comparative to where I'm from, I'm not sure if you picked up, but but I do have the Aussie accent. Um, you know, by, uh, cycling in in London in particular is you know pretty much the norm. There's a lot of cycle lanes, and um, both motorists and cyclists alike are very much aware of each other when they're complying with with sort of the road rules. So with any form of, of new mobility or uh, an introduction of a, a new vehicle. Um, people just need to be a made be made aware of the best way um, to use these. I don't think that we will see uh, struggles uh, in in our cities if our users are following um, best practice um, and guides and suggestions. So, you know, we go through a, a brief guidelines when, when a user opens the app to explain how to use the scooter and, and local um, rules around how to use the scooter and the streets that they're deployed in. Um, so I think it's just about everyone being conscious that this is this mobility is good for us and it's coming in for a valid reason. Um, and with any change, there will be some bumps. Um, and it's just about mitigating those and managing those in the same way that you do when, you, you know, new cars are released, um, you know, like autopilot functions, all this sort of stuff. As long as it's for the greater good and we're conscious of these changes and we learn to adapt, um, I, I think it should be, you know, very successful to see these on the streets in the UK. Now, when I was traveling over the last couple of years, and admittedly not traveling much at the moment, but when I was traveling, you'd, you'd find that certainly, you know, going to Lisbon or something, you'd see this explosion of, of e-scooters. You'd see lots of different brands, yourselves, uh, Jump, uh, Lime, all the, you know, all these different uh, companies. What, what makes you feel that you stand out from 
the crowd of, of what some people would say, well, it's a scooter's a scooter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, it's a good question. And I think there's a few points that I would drill home. One is that we have, you know, a track record of working with local authorities when we do launch our operations. Uh, I think exactly what you just said is what happened across the world in the frenzy that was scooters in 2017 and 18, where a lot of a lot of uh, operators sort of launched without the cooperation and without the support of local government. And we saw we saw those operators be punished uh, severely in the U.S. and being evicted from sort of their home streets. Uh, we obviously go in with a very different approach. We're going in working and collaborating with local authorities to make sure that whatever uh, whatever way we deploy is assisting them with their local strategies around moving people. Um, and also that, you know, there's a there's obviously a, a benefit um, with, uh, with uh, sorry, against our PHV drive, uh, PHV operations where we can help shift people um, from those low mile journeys uh, to scooters as well. So, you know, that's the sort of p- first piece. We really go in and we work with the local authorities. The second piece right. is, is the technology. Um, and it's, it's, it's down to the hardware. It's not just how we run our digital app and our platform, but it's, it's the hardware. As I said earlier, our new scooter is completely in-house built, modular. It's built for longevity so that we don't see um, our scooters in scrap heaps and and sort of losing the benefit that they bring to the environment by ending up in landfill. It's about having a sustainable scooter that can be completely um, rebuilt um, as as wear and tear takes place. Um, and I think that really makes us stand apart. Now, let's fast forward to a year's time. The trial has been and done. Uh, say it's been approved on, on, you know, to be used on UK streets. What, what do you see? Where do you see it all fitting in? Where do you see the sort of the end goal for for Bolt? Is it the ability for anybody anywhere to pick up a, a scooter, or is it is it more than that? Is it less than that? I think scooter they need to make sense. You know, this isn't a this isn't a fix for a uh, a massive problem outside of. Uh, outside of cities where there's a need for it so I, I don't think we're that ambitious to to see people say in rural australia jumping on a scooter um to get between farms it's it's about um you know the solution being there for and solving for a specific problem and the problem exists in cities where there's a desperate need for last mile um that counters congestion and pollution so for us it would it would be continuing to grow our our footprint um, in cities and in regions where this really is a solution for the problems that the local city faces. It's not just about um, getting in as many cities as we can, because, you know, one of our core internal values of Bolt is really around a sustainable future. So it is it is genuinely about contributing where it's needed. I've always wondered this. This is my final question. I've always wondered, why do they have to be electric? Why can't you just put regular scooters um, that you use with your good old-fashioned foot power and, and, and have that instead? You know, it's true. I actually have one. So it, it's, I, I feel like I may be the best person uh, in, in Bolt to answer that question because I, I have a, uh, a push scooter that I take out with my two sons. But the, the main reason that the scooters offer a solution uh, is because you know, when it comes to mobility and getting around, people more often than not need to get somewhere within a certain 
certain time period. Um, and I try as I may to, to push my push scooter as, as quick as I can, uh, you know, going up and down sort of Fulham and Hammersmith area. There's no way that I would be able to get to where I needed to be in the same amount of time. And with, let's be quite honest, without being significantly sweaty along the way. So really, it's, it's about getting people that have a, a need to, to get somewhere um, that may not be inclined to use a push scooter or even, you know, a bike. Because, you know, there are bike solutions there as well. So it's it, what works best for individuals. This is meant to be uh, an alternative, a choice, rather than the only solution to last mile. Thank you very much. And so we come to our review, with our own Adrian Willins being somewhat an expert on all things PC gaming, having built his own super rig. He's therefore perfect to look at one of the most intriguing games laptops around. He recently got to play with the Acer Nitro 5, a budget machine in gaming terms, to see if it's up to scratch or whether it cuts too many corners to hit an affordable price. Let's find out. So Adrian, you're here to talk about the Acer Nitro 5, which is a laptop that's been around for a while, but we recently got to see it ourselves. You got to play with it, um, and you call it an affordable uh, gaming laptop. So what what does an affordable gaming laptop actually mean? Uh, What budget is it in? Well, the basic model, I think, starts under £1,000, which is in modern times, very affordable considering the other sort of high-end laptops we've been testing recently go up to three grand and above, which is a lot of money to spend. So when you talk about budget laptops, especially when it's cramming in things like um, NVIDIA's RTX graphics cards and Intel's latest CPUs in there, you expect it's going to end up being... It's going to compromise in some areas, and I feel like the Nitro 5 doesn't. And that was what was surprising about it. And also, there's other features in there that you wouldn't expect to see in a budget laptop. Things like fast refresh screen. It's 120 or 144 hertz refresh rate on the screen, which is not the bleeding edge, because I think the top end on laptops is probably about 300 hertz. But it, it, these sort of specifications you don't tend to see in the cheaper end laptops. Um, explain. Uh, one of my big problems with gaming laptops is they normally bricks and very heavy um so um the ones that i have experience with are essentially laptops mask uh, desktops masquerading as laptops um is is the nitro 5 light and portable enough to be an everyday laptop as well as a gaming machine yeah i think so it's it's not the thinnest i've tried there are more expensive ones that are thinner and lighter but most of the gaming brands are building thin and portable laptops now and nvidia's max q variants of graphics cards basically mean they can put thinner uh, processors in there and keep things slim as possible and they're working you know every new variant of laptop that's released and even the latest nitro 5 they work to improve the uh, fan setup and the cooling pipes and make it thin as possible but still improve in terms of uh, cooling performance, make sure they still work well. So although this is chunky in some areas, for example, the bezels aren't the thinnest, um, it's quite lightweight and easy to carry around and use. And because it's only a 15.6 inch screen, it's not a huge thing either. So yeah, it's a, it's a good balance of that, I think. There. One of the other issues I've always had with gaming laptops is using a trackpad rather than a mouse. Um, is that... 
Is it possible to play a first-person shooter on a gaming laptop, for example? I don't. I don't tend to. I think most gamers would frown at you if you suggested such a thing. I'm testing an Asus one at the moment that's got a side-slung trackpad, which is a bit better, but like having it in the middle there is just a bit finicky. And the one on the Nitro 5 I found a bit awkward to use anyway. So, But there's multiple USB ports on there, so it's easy to plug in your own mouse and set up that way, and that's definitely preferable. And the other thing about these thinner gaming laptops is if you are using it on your lap, which is a position where you'd probably want to use the trackpad rather than a mouse, you'd soon find that you get pretty warm. So maybe plugging in a controller is another option. But um, you, yeah, these laptops don't tend to work that well on the lap for gaming, I've found. They get quite hot. But the Nitro 5 does quite a good job. It didn't get too bothersome, which is a bonus because there's nothing worse than getting a hot lap in the middle of the summer when it's pretty <laughs> ridiculous anyway. Unless you're, unless you're playing a racing game. In which case, hot laps are order of the day. <laughs> Bad pun there. Right. Um, the last thing about the Acer Nitro 5, because we're going to move on to something else in a second, is um, that I'd like to know is what what are the caveats, what are the cutbacks to get down to that sub £1,000 mark does it make? Well, there's, a, there's the rub, and that's what I covered in the review, is if you go for the cheapest model possible, you end up with small storage space. I think the one that I tested, for example, had a 256 gigabyte hard drive in it. It's NVMe still, so it's pretty fast. But as you know, the latest games, things like Red Dead Redemption and um, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, take up massive amounts of space. And, I mean, if you put... Both, I don't even know if you'd be able to fit both those games on that size. I feel like you probably couldn't, and it would soon fill up. And obviously, it's got Windows on there as well. And if you install anything else, you're basically going to fill those drives up quickly. So if you go for the base model, you'll soon find problems. But you can get up to two different drives in there. I think it goes up to a terabyte in total. So again, that's still not massive amount of storage. But you know, you are paying for a cheap, cheaper, not cheap, but a budget laptop that you'd expect some compromise in so storage space is going to be one of them but there's always the option of an external drive as well so there's plenty of work workarounds for it okay well let's now move on to a different end, end of the scale in some respects the gigabyte aorus 15g which is the most recent um, gaming laptop you've reviewed for pocket lint um now, what does that offer that that the uh, the Acer doesn't? Well, Gigabyte's um, crammed in all sorts of interesting things in here. You've got first of all, there's a mechanical gaming keyboard in there, which is pretty interesting. It's, they've made that low slung and react fast to things as well, which is pretty nifty. It's a bit chunkier than the Nitro Five because I think they've put more tech inside, uh, but style-wise, it's really nice. They've also got this Microsoft. Azure AI technology, I'm never sure how to pronounce that, um, that is meant to be artificial intelligence that improves the performance of the laptop based on um, the usage of it. And so it learns what you're doing and then improves the performance overall. Also, this one has a 240 hertz screen on it. So it's got some of the sort of high-end specs for a more expensive gaming laptop. And I think this one starts at about a grand and a half. So it's not most expensive so it's going to vary depending on what specs you go for but 
Again, it's pretty nifty. And under the hood as well, there's a spot for a, another M2 drive, so you can actually install that yourself. Just take the underside off, and you can install an extra NVMe drive, so you've got more storage space. So this one's appealing for a number of different reasons, and it's got loads of, like, not just hardware, but software enhancements to make your experience even more interesting. And, of course, it's got the RTX card in it, isn't it? So, yeah. So yeah, it's capable of ray tracing. So what would you say that, uh, that ray tracing actually now brings? Because the thing is, is not only on uh, PC gaming laptops and PC gaming desktops, especially with the RTX NVIDIA cards, um, ray tracing is a big deal because it's also coming to PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X. Now, what, what is ray tracing going to bring to gaming? Or is it bringing to gaming? Sorry, because PC gamers will, will cane me for saying that it's it's still yet to come. <laughs> well, NVIDIA and, uh, has been working closely with Microsoft on the uh, DirectX 12 Ultimate recently as well. So they're trying to make it easier for more developers to bring ray tracing to more games in future. So yeah, you're saying it's going to appear on consoles, but we should also see more PC games with it as well. So just better visuals and easier access for everybody and across a wider range of cards because there's rumored that NVIDIA is working on a few more rtx cards that are coming in the near future so hopefully we should see once that starts releasing the prices of the rtx variants going down and then more affordable access to ray tracing and just better visuals for everybody really so uh, going back to the uh, the previous two laptops and you know they obviously got this this fantastic new technology uh, and laps and gaming laptops in in general why do you think that uh, gaming laptops have become so popular recently I think they can do a lot more than they used to be able to. Although some niggles for me when I'm using them is like battery life, for example, isn't great on a lot of the gaming laptops. But you can get a lot. The, the technology shrunk down so much that you can get a really powerful machine in something that's more portable than it used to be. And like I feel like desktops used to be what you'd go for because you could get a lot more power out of them a lot more easily. But now things like the Max Q graphics cards from NVIDIA slim slimmed down laptops a lot more portable a lot easier to use on the move although you still need to be plugged in for gaming for the best experience but you know if you are creators and things that want to do video editing on them as well also have that power under the hood to be able to use them and the screen technology is just coming on in leaps and bounds as well obviously faster refresh rates as i said earlier you can get up to 300 hertz refresh rates on these panels now and because they're compact it makes it easier to faster faster refresh rates higher pixel counts you know, 4k screen on a 15.6 inch laptop is easier to drive and s still get good performance out of and they're pretty magnificent for the most part as well uh, so my final question really is if you've got a thousand pound burning a hole in your pocket um would you go for a budget option like the acer nitro 5 or would you save up a bit more and get something slightly better well, from what I saw from the Nitro 5, it's worth that sort of money, to be honest. Like I said, as long as you've got enough storage space, that'd be my one consideration there. But the specifications on that laptop and the experience that I had make it worth that money, to be honest. I mean, it, I think it's always better to go bigger if you can afford it. But if you're desperate and you want something good, but you know isn't going to let you down, then that's a worthwhile option. Excellent. Cheers, Adrian. Alas, that's it for this week's Pocket Limp podcast. 
If you liked it, please feel free to leave a review on your listening platform of choice. Every kind remark definitely helps. I've been Rick Henderson and I hope you join us again next week for more tech industry talk. Until then, tatty bye.